Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Good morning, Harvest. It's good to be with you again, and it's good to be returning to our Bible Project Church at Home series. And I hope that uh, so far in this series you've been challenged, and I hope last Sunday you received in your heart uh, the invitation, the exhortation that I offered that as we head into the winter months, and as it looks like the restrictions related to this pandemic are going to get tighter and tighter, we're going to just need to really bear down and be more intentional in loving one another and reaching up to God and out to one another and being the church in the days ahead. This morning, I want to look at a topic that is familiar and yet unfamiliar to most of us who have grown up in the church, and that is the gospel of the kingdom gospel of the kingdom. I want to ask you a question. If you had to summarize the central message of Jesus, his life and ministry, into one sentence, how would you do it? Like, what's the, what's the thing that would be on Jesus' t-shirt as his life motto or his central message? Now, just pause for a second and think about how you'd answer that question. Some might say, the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you or love your neighbor, uh, maybe even love God, how would you summarize it? And, and when you look at the way the, the writers of the Gospels summarized it, it's interesting how they frame the central message of Jesus. One of the earliest things that Jesus is recorded as having said is this. If you look at Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach. And this is, this is saying something, because as it says he began to preach, it summarizes his whole preaching ministry with this. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you look further at Mark chapter 1, verses 14 to 15, it's a similar theme. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And so one of the earliest things Jesus said, and a summary statement, if you will, of his whole preaching ministry is this central message. Listen, the kingdom of God is here. I think Jesus himself also saw his own ministry this way. If you look at Luke 4, 43, look what Jesus says in his own words. But he said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also because that is why I was sent. So whatever this kingdom of God is, Jesus saw it as his central message. It was the thing that brought together every other thing he would say and do. And whatever this kingdom of God was, it had arrived on the scene with and through the person of Jesus Christ. This proclamation and this kingdom was why he had been sent in the first place. And so I would frame the central ministry of Jesus as ushering in the kingdom of God. That includes bringing salvation to humanity, but it exceeds that in some important ways. What is the kingdom? 
It's a, it's a word that is familiar to us. We say it a lot. We say things like, oh, he's kingdom-minded, or we're doing this for kingdom purposes. But what does the word kingdom mean to you? For most Americans, when we hear the word kingdom, automatically we tend to think of a place. We think of a kingdom far, far away in a children's story, or maybe the magic kingdom in Orlando, or the United Kingdom across the ocean. But in the Bible, the word kingdom almost always refers to an action or a state of being. So I think when we talk about the kingdom of God, it's closer to the truth to think of it in terms of the reign of God or the kingship or rulership of God. The kingdom of God is a state of being in which God is clearly reigning as king. But if the kingdom of God is the rulership of God, then why does Jesus come on the scene 2,000 years ago and say, as if out of the blue, now finally the kingdom of God has approached. It's near. It's at hand. I mean, think about that question for a second. Hasn't God always been reigning? Hasn't he always been in charge? Hasn't he always been king? So why does Jesus arrive and suddenly announce that God is king once again? Well, the answer to the question is yes and no. God has always been king. He has always had ultimate authority over all of creation. There's no power, no authority, higher or greater than God's. And yet, if you remember a couple messages ago when uh, when I preached on the image of God, one of the things about the image of God in us is that He intended always to share or impart to us some important role in ruling over creation. And it doesn't mean ruling over creation um, in an exploitive way or an aggressive way, but ruling with God in the same way that He cares for creation. Bringing beauty and life out of chaos and void. Causing life to flourish. Expressing deep love and righteousness. In those ways, God always intended to rule over creation with us, His sons and daughters. That was his plan from the beginning. It's one of the important reasons why he breathed and implanted his image into us alone out of all the creatures that he made. And so in that sense, God's rulership over creation was incomplete because when Adam and Eve sinned and when each of us sins, we reject God's kingship over our lives. What we're saying to God when we choose to sin is, I reject your rule. And instead, I want to replace you with myself. I want to rule over myself. It's the ultimate cosmic level of saying, you're not the boss of me. I'm going to decide. No one else tells me what to do or how to live. I will decide for myself. And in fact, I reject God as king, and I install myself as king. And at first, it feels like good news, because now I am accountable to no one else. I decide what is right and wrong to me. I decide how I want to live, and it feels really good for a while. But human history, and if we're really honest, our own personal history, have proven over and over again that we make really poor substitutes for God. We don't do a very good job of ruling ourselves or ruling the world around us apart from God. The word gospel in the Bible means literally good news. The Greek word is a compound word. It's euangelion, and it's comprised of two parts. Eu means good, and angelion means announcement or news or proclamation. 
And so literally, the gospel is the proclamation of something that would be called good news. Now, when we hear the, God, the word gospel, or when we hear the phrase good news, most of us think in terms of a personal kind of good news or announcement. Like, I just got the good news that this happened, or that happened, or this is going to be given to me. And that is a, a valid uh, aspect of good news. But the word gospel in Scripture and in the ancient world almost always referred to a royal announcement, most commonly to the announcement over all of the, the land that a new king had risen to the throne. So, for example, if you have an aging king and he is, has been sick for a while and he's dead, and now the prince is the newly coronated king, then heralds would be sent out all over the land. and They would stand in the town squares and in the villages and they would shout at the top of their lungs, hear the good news, a new king is on the throne. All is well. So that's the idea of the biblical sense of the gospel is at its heart, it is primarily the announcement, a royal announcement, that a new king is on the throne. If sin at its heart is a rejection of the kingship of God, then in Christ the kingdom has come. This is good news because finally, once again, humanity has a way forward in Christ to once again come under the kingship, the rulership of the one true king who is God. When you look at Ephesians 1, 22, here's what it says. God has put all things under the authority of Christ and has made him head over all things for the benefit of the church. What, what this says and what Jesus himself said is that when he arrived on the scene, the kingdom of God had arrived with him in some real sense. It, it meant that he would open a new chapter in God's reign over all of the world and over human beings. And Jesus himself would usher in this kingship of God, this kingdom of God, by himself becoming our king. 700 years before the birth of Jesus, the prophet Isaiah prophesied about the Messiah to come. And if you read in Isaiah 52, verses 13 to 15, this prophecy is a strange mixture of horrific and honoring images. It's a see, my servant will act wisely. And this is God through the prophet Isaiah foretelling of the coming Messiah. He will be raised up and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. I chose a particularly provocative image for the background of the slide and it comes from the passion of the Christ because I believe that that image, that visual, captures the surprising way in which Jesus Christ fulfilled this prophecy. He fulfilled it, but not in the way most of us would have expected. He was raised and lifted up, but not to a throne, but to a cross. He was disfigured. And I had a hard time watching this movie. This is just one screenshot from that movie, but I'll tell you, it was really hard to watch a man that I love and admired, revered, being beaten in this way and so broken in his body. And then it says, He will sprinkle the nations. 
And, you know, when you hear that, you think he's going to sprinkle the nations with gold or with influence or with blessings. But we know that he sprinkled the nations with his blood. And when you remember back to the beginning of that prophecy, it says, my servant will act wisely. That's a very curious phrase because everything Jesus did was, in the world's eyes, the exact opposite of wisdom. If your goal is to change the world, then everything Jesus did was the opposite of the playbook. It wasn't the worldly wisdom of anybody who's seeking influence and power in the world. He associated with the lowly. He rejected celebrity status. He repudiated wealth and privilege and reputation. He ran away from good PR. He was born as a baby into a backwater town, into a rural family. If you were God coming into the world, wouldn't you come through royalty or nobility? But instead, he is born in the middle of nowhere, in a place nobody respects. And he lived his whole life without a home. He owned no property. Everything he did was the opposite of what leads to power and influence and success in our world. And then, in spite of all this, he was wildly popular. And at the height of his popularity, he enters the capital city. And instead of making an announcement of a new administration, he willingly gives himself over to a criminal's execution. And all his followers are completely lost and confused as to what's happening. This leaves an important question. Why was that the way he did it? Why did Jesus, in order to become king, first go to the cross? I want to treat that, I want to answer that very quickly for you. It's important that we're clear on this. First, he did it to turn away the wrath of God. I know we're not that comfortable with the phrase wrath of God or the idea of God being angry. Today, we want God to just always be kind, loving, patient, all the, and He is those things. Don't get me wrong. But listen, sin at its heart is the rejection of the authority of a God whose only aim is to bless us and guide us towards life that is truly life. If you have children, if they haven't already proven this to you, they will at some point. They will reject your authority. They will reject your wisdom as not wisdom at all. They will try to do it their own way. And sometimes that'll be fine. But a lot of times they will lose something important. They will hurt themselves. And at the moment, you're brokenhearted and compassionate because they are hurting. But you're also angry because all I ever wanted to do was actually help you. You rejected it and got hurt. And how am I supposed to feel? I want you to think about someone who, whose behavior, words, conduct, beliefs, attitudes just offend you at the deepest level. It's not hard to imagine such a person because we just came out of a very contentious election cycle. You know that there are people in this world whose very being, what they stand for, deeply offend you. And I want you to think about the person who's most uh, negative in your eyes, and how you feel about them. I think wrath is a pretty good word to describe the way certain people make us feel. And if we fallen imperfect human beings are capable of wrath, why are we so surprised that God, who has only ever wanted to bring flourishing life, love, righteousness, peace, is rejected by us at the deepest level? 
Why are we so surprised that he would feel wrath about that? That he would take that rejection personally? That it would frustrate him, anger him. And the Bible does speak quite a bit about the wrath of God. It's not something we should just sweep under the rug as being uncharacteristic of the God I want to know. If you want to know God, then his wrath is a part of who he is, just like my own capacity for wrath and yours is a part of who we are. And because his wrath was well-founded, it had to be addressed. Something had to turn away that wrath. And this leads us to the second reason why. Jesus went to the cross because he, he wanted to satisfy the justice of God. You know, when you and I are violated, and it, the violation is strong enough, we want more than just an apology. Sure, you cut me off in traffic, a little wave of the hand, uh, a little something, a gesture is enough. That's all I need. But when the violation is deep enough, an apology, a simple, I'm sorry, what do you want from me, is not going to do it. This is how we feel as fallen human beings. We want the offender to make things right, to pay a price, to bear some kind of penalty, and not just any. The penalty that we insist upon for justice has to be proportional to the offense, doesn't it? I mean, you don't, you don't murder someone and they get community service or probation for like three months. The, the penalty must be proportionate to the offense. So when you think about the collective rejection, rebellion, sin of all humanity over thousands and thousands and thousands of years, what could possibly make that right? The perfect life of God's own Son was the only sacrifice that was proportional. The penalty, the loss of that life was the only thing proportional to the great offense dealt to God through our collective sin. But I can't just end there because that doesn't paint an accurate picture of God or of Christ who did this for a reason. He also went to the cross to demonstrate the love of God. I want you to think about how we respond when someone has done something wrong to us. It's natural for us to expect the offender to approach us, to grovel, to apologize. We withhold forgiveness. We seek revenge. We build walls. We burn bridges. That's how we respond when we're mistreated or offended. Aren't you so glad that God is different from us? Though He was the one rejected, He came near to us. I'm so glad God's like that because that's not how I tend to be. It's probably not how you tend to be. Though he was the one violated, he paid the penalty. He didn't exact that penalty from us, but he paid the penalty in order to make reconciliation and peace with him possible. Do you see why in order to become king, Jesus first went to the cross? He became savior Because if he didn't do that, then our ability to actually live under his rule would not be real. We might admire him for a while, but sin, that rebellion, that rejection of God at the core of who we are, has to be dealt with, or we cannot live under the kingship of Jesus. And so he saves us, and then he rules over us. Let me finish this way. If you look at Isaiah 9, verses 6 to 7, listen to what 
the prophet Isaiah says. And this, these, these words will be familiar. They're read in almost every Christmas pageant across the world. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. I've emphasized the word government because I believe the choice of that word in this prophecy is meant to communicate to us that the Messiah would rule over a real kingdom, not an imaginary one. That's the point of the word government. He will rule over the people of, of God as a real king over a real kingdom. And that this is not going to be a nation state like the, the state of Israel or the United States of America, even though we often refer to ourselves as a Christian nation. He's not talking about an actual nation state. But it is a real kingdom. And this real kingdom is the only kingdom in all of human history that is promised by God to rule and to endure forever. Every other empire has come and gone. So will the dominance of the United States in the global scene. Someone else will take our place. I know that true Americans hate hearing stuff like that because we conflate Christianity with our destiny to rule everything. But there's only one government, one kingdom that is promised to endure forever. And that is the kingdom over which Jesus Christ rules as king. This kingdom will be comprised of those who are saved by Christ, have the wrath of God turned away, the justice of God satisfied, and the love of God poured out over them. And these will be the people who, in response to this, obey King Jesus out of love and honor for the whole of their lives. They recognize Jesus as their true king. You know, no matter what nation we might live in or what country is stamped on the cover of our passport, it's a good thing for us to remember that as Christians, our highest allegiance is to this kingdom, the kingdom where Jesus Christ is king. It's in King Jesus that we place all of our great hopes. It's really important to remember that in the wake of this election because our nation is absolutely divided and the division of our nation has definitely divided the church as well. I've been reading all these articles about purple churches because the church's pews are filled with red people and blue people and they identify primarily by their political color. It's interesting though that when you mix red and purple you get the color royalty. Right? Red and blue is purple and that's the color the ancient world always associated with royalty. Right now in this divided country half of us in and out of the church are either gloating or grieving as if the worst or the best possible thing for our futures has just happened. Nothing could be further from the truth. Yes, politics matter. And yes, as part of this world, it's important for us to participate 
in elections and in civic life. That's important. But we as Christ followers do not pin all our hopes on who sits in the Oval Office. It is neither what will save us or what will destroy us. Because we, though as American citizens live here, are ultimately citizens of the kingdom of Jesus the King. Like the heralds of the ancient world, our job, our privilege, is to proclaim the good news that truly a new king rules over all of us. We, proclaim, we carry this gospel when we proclaim with our mouths that Jesus is the king, the only king, the greatest king. But we also carry this gospel when we proclaim with our lives that Jesus is our king. And I, I will just close by saying this, in the history of the church in America, we have done a much better job of proclaiming with our mouths the truth that Jesus is the King, but not proclaiming with our lives that Jesus is in fact our King. It is one of the reasons that people have such a cynical view of our faith and of the church, is that our message seems true, but our lives don't always ring true. And what people need to see in us is a kingdom that, though it's invisible, is made visible every day as we live our own private lives, absolutely submitted under the rulership, the kingship of Jesus Christ, as if His rule over us is what defines our choices, our attitudes, and our belief. I don't think we're that far away from it. I don't be discouraged by this message, but I want you to know this is what makes the kingdom visible. It's us living under the authority of Christ who we truly see as a real and living king over our lives. And when we live this way, I think the world has an easier time hearing the proclamation that in fact Jesus is king and he could be their king. I invite you to think hard about the extent to which Jesus, who is your Savior, is also your King, because both of those things are good news. We're going to end with a song, and uh, as always, I encourage you to use that song as a, a, a way of responding from the heart. Um, but if you just need to minister, let, let that song minister to you, pray, reflect, you can do that as well. And when the song is over, I'm going to come back and dismiss us with a word of blessing. We are a divided nation and a divided church. But God's kingdom is indivisible. May you and I live first and live every day as citizens of the kingdom in which King Jesus reigns. May we accept with joy His good, righteous, kind rule over our lives. And I'm not talking symbolically, but truly in the way that we live, we speak, we think, we feel. May King Jesus rule over us. And as He changes us with His rule, 
May we make His invisible kingdom so visible in this world. May our mouths and our lives be for the world truly good news that Jesus Christ is King. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, be blessed now and forever. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.